I want us to uh, go ahead and turn our attention to our study tonight. Uh, this could be one of those nights when the preacher gets long-winded, so we'll go ahead and look there, and maybe we'll have enough time to get it all in. Sound good? 2 Corinthians, and we'll begin in chapter number 1. 2 Corinthians. Last week, we looked together at 1 Corinthians. This is the second of Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. We talked about what a mixed-up mess the church at Corinth was, and we'll deal with that in a little more detail maybe tonight at a point or two along the way. But uh, here Paul is writing a second letter to a church that's really out of sorts. There are, there are references in First and Second Corinthians to letter. I want to just sort of tickle your brain a little bit to get us started here while you're finding your spot and settling into the notion of studying Second Corinthians. There are references in First Corinthians to a letter that was written by Paul to the Corinthian church before 1 Corinthians. And there are references in 2 Corinthians to a letter that was written after 1 Corinthians that is not included in the New Testament. So really, there are, we know, four letters at least that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Only the second and fourth are included in the canon of Scripture. Why would that be? If the same apostle is writing to the same church, why is it that we would only have what we know as 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and not 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians, 3rd Corinthians, and 4th Corinthians? The answer is really simple and pretty straightforward. I, I wanted to kind of force you to think through this a little bit. There's opportunity for this, and I had some recent questions about how the New Testament comes together. The reason that these two letters are included in the canon of Scripture and those other two letters have fallen out of existence is because these two letters were universally uh, embraced, accepted by the church, and they were well-traveled. In other words, the New Testament did not come together because one church body got together somewhere and decided this is the New Testament, this is the canon of scripture passages that we believe to be inspired and in error. There were other New Testament documents, time, documents from the time of the New Testament, and many of those are floating around out there today, and from time to time, one more outrageous gospel or another will grab some headline and create confusion among Christians. This was a decision made by the church universally. These letters would need to be circulated broadly and embraced by the church widely in order for there to be inclusion in the canon of Scripture. Sometimes I think people get sort of mixed up that these are the only really things that are being written in this same period of time. People, uh, contrary to what many moderns believe, were rather intelligent and wrote volumes in the first century and even beyond that. From time to time, some ancient writing comes up and people get all tripped up over that, believing that somehow that belongs itself in the Scripture. No, it doesn't for a variety of reasons. Most of the time, because it does not accord with the teaching of Scripture and was rejected out of hand by the church, but even in those instances where something is healthy and wholesome and consistent with the teaching of Scripture, except it is circulated widely, and embraced by the church universally, affirmed as true by the church universally, it does not find its place among the Scripture. So there is not this haphazard process of throwing together some books and then affirming them sometime later as the books that should be included in the Bible. Nor is this, there this 4th century conspiracy where the church gets together and sort of determines among itself what they want to insist upon being taught or trained or believed in the church. There's a process here that God is watching over providentially as the books of the Bible are being drawn together for the edification and benefit of the church. Now, that's not a central issue in 2 Corinthians, but it is sort of a challenge that's raised by the idea of there being these other letters that are clearly referenced here. If you watch the History Channel documentaries, you might be led to the conclusion that there's not an intelligent argument to be made for how the New Testament comes together and the preservation of God in that process. The reality is, unless you're trying to sell books by saying something that's outrageous or get a spot on a History Channel documentary, 
the conclusions that are the New Testament conclusions, the biblical, orthodox, church history, traditional conclusions are, are really well-founded and quite insightful, and, and they've stood the test of time for more than 2,000 years now. So we're, we're coming tonight to, to the book of 2 Corinthians, understanding that in reality, in this process of correspondence between the Apostle Paul, this is the fourth of letters that was written between the Apostle Paul and the church at Corinth, which says something about Paul's ministry, right? Here's a church that's all jacked up, and I mean it is a mess. I might have been inclined to just stop writing them all together and just act like I didn't know who they were the way they acted at times. But Paul continues to persevere with the church at Corinth, and he's writing to correct and rebuke and encourage and refresh. And in spite of all of the mixed-up mess, he continues to insist that there are those within that body who are truly called by God, who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, and who have real kingdom value. Like last week's outline, I've mixed together the outline and the key themes of the book because of the nature of the book. I think it works together that way. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul provides a defense of his travel plans. Now, the thing that has unfolded since Paul wrote 1 Corinthians is that there are some he refers to as super apostles. He uses that language sarcastically. They've come to the city of Corinth, and they've sought to undermine the authority of Paul and to lead much of the church astray. So they come there, and they're super apostles in the sense that, you remember last week, for those of you who were here, we talked about how the Corinthian church was so drawn to powerful rhetoric. Like there was a certain speaking ability that drew them in. They, they wanted that. And they learned that in the culture. Like that's how you were entertained. The Friday night matinee was to gather in the city square and to hear someone speak and to speak with eloquence that would wow those who were gathered there. They sort of brought that expectation from the culture into the church. And Paul's response to that is, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I didn't want your persuasion to be based in the power of man or the affections or emotions of the heart. I wanted you to be born again by the power of the gospel. So I kept it basic, Christ and him crucified. In other words, Paul said, I am not going to play the game. But after Paul, and even after the letter of 1 Corinthians, those super apostles made their way into the life of the church, and they knew how to play the game. And in playing the game, they not only undermined the authority of the apostle Paul, they led many of the people astray. Now, it didn't take much to lead the church at Corinth astray, if we're going to be honest about it, but they, they were, in many instances, led astray. So one of the charges that has been levied against the Apostle Paul now that the tide is sort of turning against him is that he didn't do what he said he would do. In other words, Paul said he was coming to see us, and instead of coming to see us, he went to Macedonia. And what Paul explains is that my plan was to come see you and then go to Macedonia and then come see you again. But given the way things are between us at this particular moment in our history together, I thought it best to just go on to Macedonia in the hopes that there might be some repair in our relationship so that my visit to you would not be sorrowful but joyful. And this is what he's defending and describing in chapter 1. Look to verse number 12. Paul says, this is our confidence the testimony of our conscience is what we have conduct, is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with God-given sincerity and purity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by God's grace. This is the first, first indication in 2 Corinthians that Paul is going to be defending himself at length in 2 Corinthians. And if you've read the book before, you know that a great deal of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending his character before the people. Look down to verse number 23. Paul says, I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I didn't come to Corinth. I don't mean that we have control of your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand by faith. In fact, I made up my mind about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit 
For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those who ought to give me joy, because I'm confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears, out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not that you should be hurt, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. So Paul says, I just didn't want to come because I didn't want this to be a mess. And there's, there's wisdom dripping from this passage. If you know there's going to be an explosion between you and a brother, unless you let this thing sort of simmer down, there's, there's, there's no cowardice. There, there's, there's nothing wrong with just withdrawing from that and letting cool heads prevail, right? Sometimes we get really spiritual about the confrontation of sin in ways that aren't in actuality spiritual at all. Especially, I think, I, I think I've learned this lesson. I think this is a good biblical lesson. In the, in the South, because we are often so prideful, if we will just give people some space and opportunity to figure some things out, often they will, and we prevent the need to be confrontational about a certain issue. And I'm not saying we should be cowardly, we should fail to call a spade a spade. I'm not suggesting any of that. But if you'll give people a wide berth in grace, often the Lord is at work in their life and some of the spit and venom that you see in them is their wrestling against the Spirit, God convicting and doing the work Himself in their life. Sometimes it's a good thing to just give people a double, a portion, a double portion of grace and just a little space. From time to time, I'll run into someone who will say, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. And they take that to be an insistence that in the moment, we must address this issue. I've counseled with husbands and wives who come staggering in the day after, having been up all night, arguing over the same issue because the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. That is not what that passage means. The passage means don't be angry with someone or one another for a long time. But sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is go to sleep, eat a meal, go to sleep, get some exercise, be in a better frame of mind so that you can come back to this issue at a later date. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing. This is a bad season in the history of the church at Corinth. And it's grieved Paul. His heart hurts. By the way, that's the posture we take toward brothers and sisters who are indulging in sin. It's not anger, it's pain, it's grief, it's sorrow, it's sadness that they've begun to make a series of decisions that can only end in disaster for them. Paul begins the letter by defending his approach uh, to travel, namely that he would refrain from coming there. Just in the way of helping us sort of have a basic understanding of Paul's movements here, he's writing on the second missionary journey. This is about 56 AD. He was in uh, Ephesus when he wrote the first letter. He's left Ephesus. Now he's in Macedonia, and he's writing 2 Corinthians now. His plan is to leave Macedonia and to come over to them. Later, he explains, I'm going to send some guys that are going to come and help with an offering that's to be collected there, but I'm coming again only not until I can come and gain joy from my time with you and that you could gain joy from your time with me. In chapter 2, verse 14, beginning in verse number 14, this is shifting to the second key theme and the second part of our outline of 2 Corinthians. Paul takes up a, a, an explanation of Christian ministry and how it ought to be, what it ought to look like. Now, the first section where he defends his travel plans is obviously a self-defense. And in many ways, this section of the letter is a self-defense. And the self-defense continues throughout. Virtually all of the letter is bound up in Paul defending his character. We'll get to that in the latter part of our time together. But, but here, in order to answer the challenges of those super apostles... Paul speaks specifically to the nature of Christian ministry and I think what Christian ministry really ought to look like. Look at verse 14. But thanks be to God who always puts us on display in Christ and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For to God we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we're an aroma of death leading to death. 
but to others an aroma of life leading to life. And who is competent for this? For we're not like the many who market God's message for profit. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from God and before God. The Christian minister is to bear the fragrance of Christ wherever he goes. To impact the environment he steps into by virtue of the fact that Jesus lives in his heart and is dripping from his lips. Paul says our ministry is about sincerity. We have been, in essence, filled with the Holy Spirit, and our life's ambition, our heart's desire, is to share the message of the gospel everywhere we go in absolute sincerity and in truth, not as others who market the gospel for personal gain. That is not our agenda. In fact, the Corinthian church would have known full well this was not Paul's agenda. He worked for his living. He was a bivocational apostle while in the city of Corinth, fearful that any expectation of any compensation from the church, given their fragile state spiritually, would compromise their ability or their willingness to hear him well when it came to matters of the gospel. The Christian minister is to bear the fragrance of Christ wherever he or she goes. Look to chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul asks, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need like some letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. It's clear that your Christ's letter produced by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the, li- of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are hearts of flesh. Paul is referring to what is uh, an ancient practice now, the transfer of a letter from one church body to the next. I know people probably think that that's a newfangled thing that's about keeping up with statistics and all those sorts of things, but it's actually a practice that has its roots in the earliest history of the church. In a day and time when there was great care taken as to who was brought into the membership of the church, and an individual would need to be taken care of, watched after, mentored, or discipled in the early days of their involvement in the church in order to move to a new church body without having to undergo that same process again, that person would have a letter from the church they were coming from, from their sending church, and they would present that to the church that was receiving them. And on the basis of the affirmation of that former church, the new local body would welcome them into the life of their church, affirm their gifts and abilities, and immediately begin to connect them to the life of the church, serving in various capacities. So when we talk about someone moving their letter that's the language that we use um, in, in our contemporary experience. That's actually a practice that is really, really old. It fell by the wayside for a long time. Historically, it was revived as, as the United States of America was being settled. When America was moving from the east, especially into the west, it became really important to carry with you a letter from the church that was once your home church so that you could provide evidence, affirmation from your sending church that you were indeed a Christian and uh, living a life consistent with the doctrines of that particular church. So historically, this has been a part of the life of the church. Paul says, are we now commending ourselves again? He's asking this rhetorically, but, but the answer is, well, you really shouldn't have to, Paul, because it's foolish. You are an apostle of Jesus who's seen the resurrected Lord, but he finds himself again in this position where he's having to commend himself. They shouldn't need letters of recommendation, and the reason they shouldn't need letters of recommendation is because of the life that they had lived before the church. He had been with the church at Corinth. Paul spent 18 months, a full year and a half in the city of Corinth. That's longer than Paul spent most anywhere else in his ministry. Only Ephesus exceeds in in terms of duration of time. Paul spends there doing actual ministry. They had been with the Apostle Paul more so than most in all of his missionary journeys. They knew Paul's life and ministry personally. I'm going to be moving this table all night, dodging that sun back there. I'm going back the other way now. He should not have needed those letters because his character, his reputation speaks for itself. The Christian minister is to be a person of proven character. We sort of come to this place in evangelicalism where gifts or ability or style seem to be the central interest, and we're reaping the whirlwind from that now 
in many ways, scandal after scandal, striking church after church. Character still counts when it comes to Christian ministry. I don't care how gifted you are, how talented you are, how persuasive you are, how clever you are, how much charisma you have, how capable you are in certain areas of ministry, how much people like you or how much you like people. None of those things matter apart from the character qualifications set forth in the Scripture. In fact, if you look at what the Bible says with regards to the qualifications for service in in an official office of the church, find is that the overwhelming majority, more than 90% of what is listed there, is not about doctrine or theology or even gifting. It's about the character of the individual assigned to the office. Character still counts. And Paul is saying, I don't, I don't need letters of recommendation. You are my letter of recommendation. I lived among you. You have observed our manner of ministry. Look down to verse number 4. Paul says, we have this kind of confidence toward God through Christ. It's not that we are confident or sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our confidence or sufficiency is from God. The Christian minister understands that his competency, or the traditional translation, his sufficiency is not his own. And this is, by the way, the reason character matters. Because our competency is not about our giftedness. It's not about our natural ability. It's about the willingness of God to work and move by the power of His Spirit through the man assigned to the task. That's really what it's all about. We said, I think, last week, the goal of the sermon is not that people would leave and say, man, what a sermon, but that people would leave and say, man, what a Savior. that's, That's where the focus ought to be. There's a shift in an unhealthy direction often in many churches, and we need to guard against that in our hearts. And I need to guard against that as a pastor, that I'm not sort of enamored with style and presentation and those kinds of things, because at the end of the day, the substance is what matters, and the substance is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Character matters, because God is pleased to abide within and among the holiness of his people. And if there is not a commitment to holiness in the minister assigned to the task of preaching the gospel, there should be no expectation that God would move mightily within that individual instrument. Now, there are times when God hits a straight lick with a crooked stick. There are times when that happens. But there ought to be the constant pursuit of righteousness in all of our ways as ministers of the gospel. Now, when I'm speaking here about a minister of the gospel, My tendency is, because I'm a minister of the gospel, to drift in the direction of pastors and preachers and evangelists and those sorts of things. But I want you to understand that when Paul defends Christian ministry and sets forth this image of what Christian ministry ought to look like, he is not thinking in those categories. In fact, he's thinking within a framework wherein all of us as called to Christ, as born again under the Great Commission, have been assigned to the task of advancing the gospel across the street and around the world. This is God's expectation for all of us, not just those who may bear the name of pastor or some other official title within the life of the church. Look over to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse number 3. This is just a a section of a a larger uh, statement that the Apostle Paul is making. I'll try to read briefly and explain explain broadly. Verse 3 says, But if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as a Lord, and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. He describes his ministry, his responsibility as opening being an open display of the truth. The Christian minister's message is an open display of the truth. He describes this sad reality in verses 3 and 4 where some can't see it, some don't get it. But if our message is veiled, Paul says, it's not the product of our political speech or efforts at veiling the message. It's the result of sin and the blinding power of Satan over the eyes and hearts of those for whom it is veiled. Except those scales fall away, they cannot see, they will not see. 
God said to Isaiah, having eyes, they will not see, ears, they will not hear, hearts, they will not discern. Except God move supernaturally in our life, we will not see the beauty of the gospel. I've noticed that in a lot of testimonies, I've said the same thing, but I was thinking about this recently. I've often said, and I've heard many others say the same, no one ever shared the gospel with me until that moment when I came to faith. And we always, always say that to try to goad people to share the gospel. But I wonder if it's not that we just didn't have eyes to see, that we just didn't have ears to hear, that we just didn't have a heart to discern, except or until God does that work by the Spirit that grants us the capacity to see, hear, and discern, we will not see, hear, or discern. But those are the only folks for whom our message should be veiled. We don't take the approach. We don't employ the tactics of modern-day politicians speaking around issues. Rather, we speak clearly and we speak directly the message of the gospel to give every occasion to those for whom their eyes have not been veiled to see, to hear, and to believe. We don't have to be overly fancy in our presentation of the gospel. We just need to present the gospel. That's where the real power is. The power is in the gospel. Paul says, we've been an open display of truth in all of our preaching ministry among you. And may the same be said of those that God sends out from this local body as well. Look down to verse 7. Here Paul says, now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We're pressured in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who live are always given over to death because of Jesus, so that Jesus' life may also be revealed in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, everything, everything is for your benefit so that grace extended uh, through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. Therefore, we don't give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day for our momentary light affliction is producing in for us or in us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory so that we don't focus on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. The Christian minister, the effective Christian minister must understand that we are merely jars of clay, that we are in and of ourselves insufficient, incompetent for carrying forth the task that God has called us to, but he is able. And even as this jar of clay is brittle and broken and fading away, there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness and a place of great glory that is unmatched by anything this world knows. The Christian minister is to focus on the unseen and not the seen. Therefore, let the things of this, this world slide as we labor and strive and grasp to lay hold of the unseen. There's a lot of conversation here about the frailty of the human body and the struggles that Paul endures over the course of his ministry there's a few verses here that are, are at least to me especially moving but i find what he says in verse 18 of special interest we don't focus on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal i'm getting ready to preach on sunday morning hebrews 11 1 through 6 it's the beginning of that faith chapter and uh, I, I've really been wrestling back and forth with that passage. But what seems to be clear is that the battle is not between faith 
and thinking or faith and reason. In fact, that passage seems to suggest that thinking, that reason, leads to faith. The battle in Hebrews 11, 1 through 6 is described here in verse 18. The battle is between what is seen and what is unseen. Like you, you believe certain things until you begin to see something that would suggest somehow otherwise. Like one example or illustration of this principle I was looking at today, if, if you're going to the doctor and they say you're going to have a surgery, it's going to be minor, no big deal. You're probably going to be okay with that. You're good with that until you get to the hospital. And then they roll you back to that waiting room. People are laying around and moaning and groaning and they got knives out, masks on and all this weird stuff. And then you begin to have some doubts. It's, 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 not that you've, it's not that you've thought about this and, and you've come to logical conclusions about what the doctor said and that must not be right. It's that you've begun to see some things that have made you call into question what you had previously believed. The battle is not between faith and reason or faith and thinking. The battle is between the seen and the unseen. And frankly, there are times when we see some things that would seem to indicate in this life that, that we're headed in a bad direction. But what the gospel calls us to remember is that the unseen, the promise of God for us is unseen but precious that exceeds in value anything that this world could afford. You're going to have to labor to look with eyes of faith and not with sight if you're going to run the race with endurance. That seems to be the message there. And it seems to be at least hinted at here in chapter 4 as well. Look down to chapter number 5 and verse number 20. Just a couple of other things briefly about Christian ministry. Chapter 5 and verse 20. I quote verse 21 a lot. I think it's probably etched in my mind because of working with the royal ambassadors as a young man in the church. This is the theme verse of RA ministry, right? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who didn't know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Christian minister is a representative of or ambassador of Christ. As if Christ were pleading through us, be reconciled to God. That's our message to the world. Be reconciled to God. Not in a forceful way, not spoken as an imperative, but spoken as a plea, as though we were begging with them that they would be reconciled to God. Not, not with a scowl on our face, but with a tear in our eye. Be reconciled to God. Come to faith in Christ before it is eternally too late. Come to faith in Christ. Every Christian minister, regardless of stripe, gift, style, approach, location, is a representative of Jesus. Chapter 6, there's a little bit of a shift here. Paul plays the resume card a little bit. He says in verse 3, we give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry will not be blamed. There's a sense in which Paul is motivated to righteousness in his personal life to take extra precautions and great pains that he would do nothing personally and those within his party would do nothing personally that would invalidate or cause their ministry to lose credibility not because Paul is interested in his credibility or standing with the people but because he is concerned that his loss of credibility might mean loss of credibility with regards to the gospel and then he speaks of all of the hardships that he's faced. The point here is that the Christian minister must be above reproach. We talked last week about this matter of the medium is the message. People interpret our message, our gospel message, through the filter of our life. What they see in us becomes the prism through which they hear the things that we say. They're interpreting our sermon on the basis of the way we live our life. So that if, that if we say repent and believe, but if we are unrepentant and unbelieving in parts of our life, they can only come to the conclusion 
well, this is just sort of this ambivalent kind of thing. We're just kind of between two positions, not really serious about any of this, but we want to affirm this enough that we receive all of the benefits of this, but let's don't be too crazy here, right? Here, here Paul says, I've taken great pains to see to it that I would do nothing that would invalidate or in some way trifle with how people hear or understand the message of the gospel. And he just runs this laundry list of difficulties that he's faced in verse 4. But as God's minister, we commend ourselves in everything by great endurance, by affliction, by hardship, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the message of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness on the right hand and the left through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying and look we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken openly to you, Corinthians. Our heart has been opened wide. You are not limited by us, but you are limited by your own affection. This is one of those moments in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, I don't have anything to prove. I was having a conversation with a, a member out over dinner, and, and there was accusation made within their circle of friends and family. And I, I made the comment, and I really believe that this is true, and I've, I've found some comfort in this through the years in ministry, because I don't know whether y'all know this or not, but if you're a pastor, everybody in, in the county knows more about what you do and you believe than you do. I've been interested to walk in on some conversations and learn about things I believe, you know. Time and truth are old friends. They're old friends, and they'll not be divided. And eventually, over the course of time, proven character will tell the truth. Peter says something in encouraging the churches of Asia Minor addressed there in, in First and Second Peter. He says, you ought to silence the ignorance of foolish men by doing what is right. The nature of Christian ministry ought to be such that even when an accusation is made, those old friends, time and truth, and a proven character can withstand that accusation without you having to blast somebody on social media. That's the way Christian ministry really ought to look. And that's the approach Paul takes. Really very little is said about the super apostles, although I think that is sort of a sarcastic title that Paul gives them in 2 Corinthians. But much is said about his consistency among them, plodding faithfully over time to see the gospel advance. There's one last section in 2 Corinthians I want us to take a few minutes to look at. It's the third section in your outline, and it's the section of 2 Corinthians that deals with Christian stewardship and that collection that Paul is receiving for the churches of Judea and Jerusalem, chapters 8 and 9, are focused on these issues. There, there are some really helpful, practical insights here uh, with regards to Christian stewardship. Look to chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God granted to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of their generosity. In other words, the churches of Macedonia have really, they've, they've really helped me, and they've really contributed substantially to this offering that's being received for the churches in Judea. And we've mentioned in weeks past, for those of you who weren't here, there's a lot of what Paul writes in his 13 letters that is, is driven by this desire to collect a love offering from the Gentile church and deliver that to the Jewish churches of Judea because there's a famine in Judea during this time. Now, not only does Paul want to help them during this difficult season, he hopes that this offering would foster unity between the Jewish and Gentile churches. There are efforts at racial reconciliation in the first century church, and this offering Paul hopes to factor considerably in bringing Jew and Gentile together. The churches of Macedonia, specifically the church at Thessalonica and the church at Philippi, gave generously toward this end. In fact, Paul says in, first, in Philippians chapter 1 that their generosity was such that it had spread throughout the region of Macedonia and even down into Achaia, 
others were hearing about their generosity, even giving out of their poverty to meet this need in Judea, many were impressed and encouraged themselves to give likewise. Down in verse 7, Paul says, Now as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this grace. In other words, Paul says give, and give well, give generously. As, a, as an expository preacher, that's my approach to preaching. I preach systematically through books of the Bible with very few exceptions. We don't ha- you're not provided with that approach with a lot of opportunities to talk about stewardship or financial matters. And I get that. But I want you to know that, that those matters, that stewardship and financial matters, are a considerable part of our walk with Jesus. Those are issues that can be, well, they can dominate a lot of your thinking time. A lot of your thoughts can be focused there if you're not. In fact, the poor steward you are, the more of your thought, your finances are likely to dominate. This is a considerable part of our walk with Jesus. It's, it's an area of our life that we're able to look to and make certain assessments of our genuineness or our sincerity. You really care about the things that you resource well. As a church body, this is true of us. You care about what you resource, not what you say you care about, but what you do care about, what you resource well. As an individual, you really care about what you are interested in, where your concern lies, is reflected in the way you utilize the financial resources that God entrusts to you. And it might be a sobering thing to take a fresh look at that and to evaluate where your real interests are. Because Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's not just true in a heavenly sense, in that we're making an eternal investment and our heart is following after that investment, that treasure. It's also true in a practical sense. Where you put your time and your talent and your treasure, your heart will soon follow after. That principle works itself out in an abundance of different ways. It works itself out in relationships, husbands and wives and friendships and, and giving and stewardship in general. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We ought to determine together as a people, because it is so characteristic of Christian folk, that we would give and that we would give well. This is dealt with in helpful ways, I think, in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. Look down to verse number 8. I'm not saying this as a command, rather by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. In other words, Paul says you say you love the saints, put your money where your mouth is. In verse 9 he goes on, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Down in verse 11, Paul continues, but now finish the task as well, that just as there was eagerness to desire it, so there may also be uh, eagerness to bring it to completion from what you have. Now the background there is Paul has already sort of pitched the idea of giving to this Jerusalem collection, and there was an eagerness on their part to do just that. He's concerned now that given the way he has talked about their eagerness to give in Macedonia, if he sends brothers from Macedonia to pick up the offering and their generosity does not accord with what Paul has described, he would embarrass the church at Corinth. It's in the beginning. Now let's let there be some eagerness in the completion of this task that we've set our hand to do. Give, give well, give generously, give consistently, give lavishly. But let's make sure that we have all of our ducks in a row as the time and opportunity comes to be able to give in this way. Uh, in, in verse 15, Paul cites Exodus 16 and 18. And there's a helpful proverb here. The Bible says here, the person who gathered much did not have too much, and the person who gathered little did not have too little. It's a quote from the experiences of Israel when God sent manna from heaven. Every now and then, someone would get greedy. They'd gather up more than what they needed. And every now and then, someone else would get a little lazy. They'd gather a little less than what they needed. But somehow, in God's economy, it all worked out. 
I don't, I don't know how to do math in God's economy, and neither do you. Because God's economy doesn't always add up in earthly kinds of ways. For instance, five loaves and two fish don't feed 5,000, but in God's economy it does. You, you're going to have to learn, if you're going to be a good, cheerful, generous giver, to trust the economy of God. And again, I don't know how it always works out. I just know that it does. And this is not some health and wealth pitch that you would give away everything that's been entrusted to you to the church somehow and just expect to bankroll the next few months on credit cards or finance charges. That's, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. God gave you a brain. You ought to employ it in the stewardship of the finances he's entrusted to you. I'm simply talking about a willingness to make personal sacrifices in order to help meet the very real needs of others or to make personal sacrifices when those needs are not physical but spiritual, namely getting the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Somehow in God's economy, when there's a willingness on the part of his people to make those sacrifices, God is so open-handed and throwing open the windows of heaven and pouring out such a blessing that, that, that it's really, I find it to be an infrequent thing that we ever get the privilege of experiencing any pain that might have been associated with the sacrifice made because God tends to provide in such a lavish way on the back end of that experience. Now, I don't know how it works, and I'm not telling you to get, I'm not guaranteeing you. This is not a sow a seed in a late night televangelist spill, give it all away and see what God does tomorrow. That's not good stewardship. But I am telling you that God has an incredible way in his economy um, with a generous and cheerful heart. Trust God's economy. Look down to verse 16 and following. This is a good principle as well. Our time's almost up. Hang in with me. Thanks be to God who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. This is the Titus of the book of Titus, right? For he accepted our urging and being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. We have sent him with the brother who is praised throughout the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gift that's being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We're taking this precaution so that no one can criticize us about this large sum administered by us, for we're making provision for what is right, not only before the Lord. Here's what Paul is describing there. They have put into place measures for accountability with regards to how this gift is administered. There ought to be a willingness within every church body to open themselves to accountability with regards to how the financial issues of the church are, are handled, are addressed. That's just sensible. It's just wise. Paul says, in our case, we're sending Titus, a man of good report, and we're going to guarantee that this offering remains in the hands of reputable men so that it's delivered appropriately to the church in, in Jerusalem. It's just, it's just sensible stuff. But it's sort of refreshing to me to see that kind of sensible stuff affirmed in the practices of, of the early church. Like if, if, you, if you go to federal prison in Atlanta for 20 years for embezzling all of the money in your company, we will have a place for you, and we will love you and show you grace when you get out. We're just not going to put you in the finance department, right? <laughs> Paul says, we're, we've chosen Titus, and we've entrusted to his care this ministry, and he's going to see to delivering this gift in this way. There, there are other really helpful principles here. Paul describes the law of the harvest. He says uh, in verse Let's see, I've lost my passage. Paul says in verse number 6 of chapter 9, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. From time to time, I hear somebody trying to be sharp or they say something on Facebook about karma. Christians don't believe in karma and they don't usually know what they're talking about when they say that. They just heard somebody on TV say it, and they're trying to be sharp. And you don't want karma to be true because it's not very encouraging at all. Just don't, just don't, just don't say that. But they say it because they think, 
they think that they're re- reflecting on something that they have observed. What they have observed is not what goes around comes around, which is really what karma is all about. What they have observed is the law of the harvest. That if you sow, you will reap. And as Paul describes it here, if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow abundantly, you will reap abundantly. This is called the law of the harvest. That's what you're observing in your life experience. Not karma, for heaven's sake. Don't say that to me. Because we'll have to have a long conversation. And I I feel compelled to answer all social media posts that include any reference to karma. We don't believe in that. But the law of the harvest is real. Put hand to plow, (laughs) sow abundantly, and the promise of God is that we will reap in due time if we do not quit. One more principle with regards to Christian stewardship here in our passage. Look at verse 7. Each Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. When you give, give with a glad heart. One of the the best things about being a good steward or being a good manager of your financial life is the joy that you can then take in being able to give to God And you can just daydream about the ways that God might multiply that gift and do something that really impacts a person's life or advances the kingdom through that gift given now with a cheerful heart, not begrudgingly or or with this sort of nagging concern at how the next week's going to go. Can we make it until the next paycheck? And so many people live that way. But if you ever get that under control and begin to manage that, the joy, the gladness of heart that can come with entrusting into God's care what he has entrusted to us is a really thrilling, exciting thing. It ought to be a considerable part of our worship together. I missed, and I hope you missed, during that initial COVID phase, the ability to give as a congregation in that traditional sense. I, I, I know we don't have book, chapter, and verse to say you need those wooden plates and you need to pass them around at the end of the service or just before the preacher preaches. I know all that. But there's something about having the opportunity as a congregation to give collectively that's, that's an act of worship that ought to be shared congregationally. There, there, there are really good insights here with regards to how you manage finance and how you oversee such things, just some good practices, not just for individuals, but also for the church as a corporate body. If you really want to get to know the Apostle Paul, you'll spend a great deal of time with 2 Corinthians because here he bears his heart. He shares things here he doesn't share elsewhere. Talks about the hardships and the challenges that he faces along the way. More than anything else, celebrates the sufficiency of God's grace for him even in the face of his own personal weakness. Let's go to Jesus in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and its truth and the time to spend together reflecting on the teaching of 2 Corinthians. Help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. Thank you again for Jesus, for his blood shed for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.